0: We're so happy that you're here today. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 12 and reach inside your bulletin if you haven't already. Pull out your sermon notes so that you can take notes. And if you don't have a Bible today, our ushers are going to come down the aisle. And I just want to warn you, I'm going to read as much of the Bible today as like I ever have in a sermon here. Very Bible studyish today. So if you follow along better with something in your hand, wave at our ushers. Everything will be on the screen. You can dial it up on your phone or tablet, whatever you're following along on. Um, But we enter Acts chapter 12, where we left off last week at the end of Acts chapter 11. And last week, we've been in a study all summer long about the life of the Apostle Paul. We've been in a study all year long about the book of Acts, looking at kind of how the church started and the things that were really important in the early days of the church. And last week, we saw really the first offering that was ever taken in the church. We get to the end of Acts chapter 11, and they found out that there were some needy people in a part of the country of Israel called Judea because there was a famine. And they said, hey, these people are in need. Let's take an offering um, and, go, and go give it to them. We'll take an offering and we'll take it ju- to Jerusalem and give it to them. And when we pick up in Acts chapter 12, verse 25, they are completing this mission to take the offering to Jerusalem. So here's what it says in Acts 12, 25. I'm gonna stop and then we'll get into the rest of the text. It says, when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission... Their mission was to take the offering to Jerusalem to help the people who were in need. They returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Now, here's the point we made last week, if you're taking notes. The church in the book of Acts was aware of needs, and they were actively involved in meeting needs. And we said, if we, if we want to model the church, the church that Jesus started in Acts chapter 1 and 2, then we have to be aware of needs in our community, and we have to be actively engaged in meeting needs in a community because that's what Jesus Church does. So we gave you a project that we launched last week. This is in your bulletin. If you haven't already, grab this and pull it out. And we said last week, we started making calls earlier this spring. There are seven elementary schools that feed into this middle school that we're sitting in today. And we started calling the principals and guidance counselors at the school. And we said, we want to do something for our community. What do you need done? We meet in the middle school. How can we serve you? Any way you tell us to, we'll, we'll come and serve you. And they said our greatest need going into next year is they said we've each of them had groups of students that they said are not gonna be able to afford to have a backpack, to have school supplies. And they said they're gonna show up the first day of school. They're, they're not gonna be well equipped uh, right off the bat. They're probably gonna have some self-esteem issues. So if you could help us by providing backpacks full of school supplies before the school year starts, that these kids can come pick up before the first day of school, That would be huge. And we said, how many do you need? And the seven elementary schools collectively needed about 250. So we said, as a church, we're going to provide 250 backpacks full of school supplies to make sure that kids who will one day come to this elementary school are taken care of when school starts. And we said, there's five ways you can get involved in this project. One you can give. Uh, For $50, you can purchase a backpack. All the needed school supplies have it delivered to the school." Um, you can shop. We had some people say, listen, I, you know, I'd love to give, but I'd rather take my kids and shop and show them, like as a family, this is what we do together to help people. So if you want to shop, you can check this box. We'll send you an email, or you can pick up a list on the table. You can go get it all, bring it to the offices, we'll give it to the school. You can be a surrogate shopper. A lot of people say, right now, I don't have $50, um, but if someone has money and doesn't have time to shop, I've got time to shop, but no money, so just call me and I'll go help buy all the stuff. I really enjoyed doing that. Um, You can sort and pack and you can help us deliver to the seven elementary schools in August. We had over 100 people from our church that already leaned into this project and signed up last week and said, let me help. 87 of the 250 backpacks have already been purchased or have been signed up to be purchased, which means we're about a third of the way there. But we've got a little further to go to get 250 and to meet all the needs. And as we read last week, we want to complete our mission of the backpack project just like Paul and Barnabas completed their mission going to Jerusalem. And if we were to be really honest with ourselves as a community, we spent, in my neighborhood alone, enough money on fireworks last night to maybe feed everyone in North America for like the entire school year, right? I mean, so, like, it, it's not a matter of if, it's like a matter of, you know, is this, in, is this important to us? Because um, I blew up a couple things that cost more than, than a backpack just by themselves. Um, and one of them fell over and, and nearly burnt my house and my neighbor house, house down. But he was out of town, so we're not going to tell him. Um, but, but that's okay. But we've got this project where we think we can serve people in our community through doing this. And that's what the church was doing in the book of Acts. They were serving people in their community. They were completing the missions that had been given to them. But it was more than about meeting physical needs. Let's keep reading. We're going to start again in verse 25 of Acts 12. We're going to go all the way through verse 14 of Acts 13. It says, When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Now circle the name Mark right there. Because this is the Mark that wrote the book of Mark. This is the Mark who was great friends, probably his mentor was somebody named the Apostle Peter who you've heard of. This Mark from the book of Mark we know was hanging out with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night he was arrested, which means this. Paul had someone hanging out with him who personally knew Jesus. So as Paul went and started telling people about Jesus, Paul could say, ask Mark. He knew him. He hung out with him. They went fishing together. He was there when he was arrested. Paul had someone with him who personally knew Jesus. Pretty big deal for this new ministry at the start. 13.1, it says, Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and they sent them off. Verse 4, the two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and they sailed from there to Cyprus. Underline that word Cyprus, I'm going to come back to in a minute. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer. And a false prophet named Bar Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God, but Elymas, the sorcerer, for that's what his name means, opposed them and he tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, by the way, you should underline that verse, for the rest of the New Testament, he'll be called Paul. Saul was a Hebrew name that would have been well understood among Jewish people, Paul was a Gentile name. It allowed him to just minister a little better among Gentile people. But from now on in the New Testament, it's Paul. Then Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elemas and said, You're a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that's right. You're full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now, the hand of the Lord is against you, and you're going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. Now, I want to stop right there, because what we're going to find out as we read through Acts chapter 13 and into Acts chapter 14, is we're going to see what happened that allowed the church to go from a group of 12 people, once Judas was out, 11 people in Jerusalem, to a global phenomenon where now there are more than 2.2 billion people in the world who attend a Christian church of some type. How in the world did that happen? We're studying the book of Acts this year because we want some inspiration for our lives of how we can follow Jesus better. But we're studying the book of Acts because they were doing something right. And because we want to reach our community and we want to have an impact on our community like they clearly were able to impact the world. So we're looking at Acts to say, how did they do what they did? And what we find in Acts 13 and 14 is we begin to see the strategy behind the story. We begin to see how they intentionally took the church and started spreading the impact of the story of Jesus. So what was the strategy behind the story? I want to show you three things today. First, we want to see that that they were called to a specific work. In verses 2 and 3, God stopped their their church service that they were having and said, hey, make sure you stay on mission. There's something specific that I need for you to do. Look at verses 2 and 3. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting... The Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and they sent them off. So here, here's this early church. They're having a church service. It says they were worshiping. It probably didn't look exactly like what we just did. It probably wasn't nearly as loud as maybe what we just did. But similar thought that they're going to worship, they're going to praise God a little bit. Then they had some time of prayer. And then God began to move on the hearts of the leaders and say, hey, let's remember, let's remember why we're here. And what we need to understand about this church in Acts that I think sometimes churches today forget is the church that was gathered together in Acts was aware of those outside the church that needed Jesus. They weren't just focused on themselves. They weren't just having business meetings. They weren't just building buildings. They weren't just kind of overseeing programs. When the church got together, there was an awareness that not everyone was in the church yet, and there were some people that still needed to hear about Jesus so that their life could be impacted the way that the people in the church's life had been impacted by Jesus. Now, when is the last time, for those of you who were in a small group, that you got together in your small group to talk about someone who wasn't there? Now, for most of you, that's probably most of the time you meet. You talk about somebody who's not there. So I'm not saying not in a negative way, were you talking about someone who's not there? But how many of you, when's the last time you met in a small group where you said, you know what? We all collectively, we know these three or four people and it appears they have a spiritual need. What are we, what are we gonna do? When is the last time where you were with your volunteer group? You were with a group of friends that went to, that go to youth group together and you collectively came together and said, you know, there's someone who never comes here. Um, and I, I think Jesus in their life would have a positive impact. This church was aware of people's spiritual needs and people who needed Jesus. Last week, we talked about physical needs. They were aware of physical needs. They need some help. Let's take an offering and help them. But they were also aware of spiritual needs. The church was aware of and active in trying to meet both physical needs and spiritual needs of people that were hurting outside the church. All while, as we read the book of Acts, they were also strengthening those in the church through studying the Word of God, learning the Word of God, Through spending time in Christian community, that means together with other Christians every time they came together. So I have people ask me all the time, well, Christian is, is the church, um, is it for Christians or is the church for people who don't need Jesus? And I would say, according to the book of Acts, both. Like, it's for both. The Christians are supposed to come together and have an awareness and a burden and actively be ministering to people who don't know Jesus. Well, is is the church supposed to meet physical needs of people in the community? Or spiritual needs of people in the community? Well, according to the book of Acts, both. They're they're supposed to do both at the same time. So a church that's functioning properly, when they come together, they'll be growing spiritually, but their eyes will be on people who don't know Jesus, and they'll be engaged in meeting both physical and spiritual needs. Our mission statement as a church, we try to combine all these things together. We say we exist to see people far from God become passionate Christians who make a difference in the world. So when we come together, hopefully as a group of Christians, not everyone in here maybe is a Christian. This might be new to you and you're kind of trying to figure out what it is. But a lot of us in the room would call ourselves Christians. Hopefully today, you're going to be strengthened a little bit in your faith and you're going to grow a little more passionate. Some of you today are going to be able to lean into making a difference in meeting physical needs by signing up for the backpack program. But how many of us here today, let me ask you this question, really see... And are aware of people in your life that are far from God? Here's the question. Are you aware of people in your life far from God? Do you see them? We said as a church, we exist to see. We exist to see. We exist for the people in our church to open their eyes to the reality that there are people in their life that don't know Jesus and to figure out a way to do something about that. Do you you see people in your life that are far from God? Does it get your attention? Does it bother you? You know, one of the things that I, that I don't like a lot is social media. And one of the reasons I don't do Facebook anymore, I'm not on Twitter a whole lot, my son's trying to convince me to get into the Instagram world, is because I see everything spiritually. And I struggle watching people live their life on social media, and I struggle seeing all the spiritual needs or the distance that people live for, for God. It bothers me. I want to make a phone call every time I see someone post something that, that's moving in the wrong direction. I want to minister to them. So it's hard, it's hard for me because I see things differently. I see things spiritually. And as a church, my prayer is that we would begin to see things spiritually. One of the things that I've realized the last 10 years, the last decade, watching um, as my kids are 13 and 11, um, the last decade I've, you know, I've been watching Spongebob and Phineas and Ferb and... Um, you know, kick Batowski. Like, I've been watching these cartoons on the Disney Channel with my kids. And one thing I think I'm realizing at 37 is the cartoons in our day were way better like than the cartoons that our kids are watching now. Like, you can't beat the Smurfs. I mean, you just can't beat the little little blue people. Scooby-Doo, I mean, it's just, you know, he and his pesky friends are just awesome um, DuckTales with like the Scrooge man. like I watched DuckTales every day as a little kid. The Rescue Rangers, you know, Baloo and all the gang hanging out, helping people. Like cartoons were just great. But one of the cartoons I watched that I loved when I was little was a cartoon called Thundercats. I don't know if any of you watched Thundercats, but Thundercats was a story. This is Lino. He was like the lead Thundercat guy. It was a group of kind of like cat men that was like half cats, half superheroes. And this is Lino. He was a lion that was awesome. And then there was like Panthro and Tigress. She was like a a female. And then they had kind of a little deformed cat that they called Snarf. And now he's like the coolest cartoon that I ever watched. And the thing that I liked about Thundercats is Lino had a sword, this like magical sword. And on his sword was what was called the Eye of Thundera. That's they all lived in a kingdom called Thundera. And Lino could take his sword as the good lead cat of the pack and he could hold it up to his eyes, and when he held it up to his eyes, and he would say, This sights beyond sight. Show me basically what I need to see. Sights beyond sight. And this little sword would become like magical binoculars that would allow him to see not only what was going on, but the end result of what would happen if he didn't step in and do something. And I thought, man, wouldn't it be cool if you and I could see spiritually? really see spiritually not only what was going on in the lives of our families and friends, but the end result of what would happen if we didn't step in and help people know Jesus. Like I think it would change our church if we could magically see through the doors of homes and realize the smile that walks out the front door does not exist once people go inside. And and the online profile of happiness was not the real profile of what people felt when they were crying themselves to sleep on their bed. Like if we could really see beyond just what we see to the reality of people's souls, and we could see the end result of where a life without Jesus ends up, would we not be more motivated to have a specific work to figure out how to help people in our life who didn't know Jesus find Jesus? We see in Acts, the church's specific work was going to take them to seven towns to share Jesus. It's not important that you know all the towns. I'm going to list them for you. They'll be on the screen. You don't need to write them down. Salamis, Paphos, Perga, Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby. Really, the first two are the most important ones that you need to know because the first two, Salamis and Paphos, were on the island of Cyprus. And we learned from Scripture that Barnabas was from Cyprus, which means this, his ministry started at home. Barnabas said, if we're going to reach anyone, I've got, got to reach my people first. And as a church, a lot of times we come together and we focus on pockets of people in the community, but ministry doesn't start at home. And some of you parents, your first ministry needs to be your kids. Some of you students, your first ministry needs to be your mom and dad's. All of us, our first ministry needs to be our neighbors in our neighborhood. See, Barnabas says, we need to go help people find Jesus. Let's start at my house. Paul had already spent three years at his house in the region of Galatia. These two pastors who would change the world said, I want to make sure my household is in order first. I want to make sure my friends know Jesus first. I want to make sure my school knows Jesus first. I want to make sure the place I work knows Jesus first. And after I've hit all my people... I'm going to go into the world. But we see that the specific work started with people who were close to these Christians and then it extended to those they had never met. Now, on the inside of your bulletin, I've put this little map just to show you maybe a resource tool that you had in your Bible that you didn't even know about. Because this is, and you'll see on the screen, just a little different map reflecting this. This is Paul's first missionary journey. It's everywhere he went. Some of you, like me, are visual learners. So you actually see where Paul left from Palestine and then he went up to Antioch. He sailed all over the Mediterranean. You're like, wow, he did, he did a lot of work. I put this in your bulletin only to show you that most of you have this in the back of your Bible. Some of you have wondered, why are there maps in the back of my Bible? Like you've, you look at them every now and then. Maybe you pulled them out on a road trip one time. I thought, no, this ain't Kansas City. Um, you know, and it didn't get you where you need to go. But one of the maps in almost the back of every Bible that has maps is Paul's missionary journey. So as you read along... These things just help. You say, okay, also, that's that's where he was. That's where he went. But they were very strategic in their work and where they were going. And that's the second point. So the work was specific. But number two, the strategy was specific as well. They actually did the same thing in every city that they went to, the same way, because they had a strategy that God had told them would work if they would follow it. We're going to pick... Back up in verse 14 of Acts 13. And we're going to see how they did ministry. And kind of take a deep breath and find yourself in Acts 13. Because we've got a a little bit of scripture to read here. We're going to go all the way through verse 39. It says, From Perga they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath they entered the synagogue and they sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Standing up. Paul motioned with his hand and he said, fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. And for about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness. And he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. He just walked us from Genesis 1 all the way through the book of Joshua. After this, Joshua gave them judges until the time of Samuel and the prophet. He spent one line on the book of Judges. Verse 21, then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years after removing Saul. He made David their king, and God testified concerning him, I found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He'll do everything that I want him to do. So now we're all the way through 2 Kings. Verse 23, just summarize in the Old Testament. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John, that's John the Baptist, preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, who do you suppose I am? I'm not the one you're looking for, but there's one who's coming after me whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us, circle the word us, It is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers didn't recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and they laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised to our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus. As it's written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I've become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he'll never be subject to decay. As God said, I'll give you a holy and sure blessings promise to David. So it's also stated elsewhere, you won't let your holy one see decay. Verse 36, now when David has served God's purpose in his generation, he fell asleep. He was buried and with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead didn't see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus... The forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you through him everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. So here was the strategy. This is what Paul and Barnabas did in every town that they went to. He probably preached this sermon hundreds of times. They would go into a synagogue on the Sabbath. What is a synagogue? It's basically a Jewish congregation. What is a Sabbath? It was Saturday. We have Jewish congregations all over the city in Kansas City that yesterday had the Sabbath in their synagogue. Because Paul was a Pharisee, which meant he was an expert teacher. Because Barnabas was a Levite, which meant he had probably served at the temple in Jerusalem at one point. They were very special, honored guests among Jewish people around the world. So they would come, they would probably sit, who knows where in the congregation. They would go through most of the church service. Then they'd say, we have two very honored guests here today. Would you all want to stand up and say anything? Paul would take the mic, he would get up. And he would basically give the gospel. He probably preached this sermon hundreds of times. And at the end of this sermon, he would invite people to know Jesus. And then he would tell them, let's go now reach the world. Because here's God's strategy. The people of God are supposed to take the message of God to a world that needs God. This was Paul's very simple message. He summarized it in verse 26 when he said, God could have done what he did with anybody. But he chose us. He chose us to receive this message and then he chose us to go give this message. The strategy of God is that the people of God are supposed to take the message of God to a world that needs God. You say, what does that mean for me? That means this, if you're a person of God, if you're a person who knows God, if the message of God has come to you, It's your job to find out the people in your life who don't really understand the message of God and give it to them. That's the strategy that God has. But when the people of God aren't concerned about a world that needs God, and these Jews in this city were not, God finds another way. And as we keep reading in verses 40 through 48, Paul says, this is the way it's supposed to go. God's given this message to us. We were entrusted with it, not just to keep it, but to take it and give it to others, Paul said, but for a long time, man, our fathers haven't wanted to do this. Don't follow in their footsteps. And sure enough, they did. They were like, you know, we don't know that we want to be into that. In verse 40, Paul said, take care that what the prophets have said doesn't happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. Verse 42, as 42 Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things. On the next Sabbath, when the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts of Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, so the next Saturday, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying, and they heaped abuse on him. And when Paul and Barnabas answer, then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word, to God of, the word of God to you first, since you reject it and don't consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord commanded us. I've made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad, and they honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Listen, Paul went into this congregation, he said, here's God's plan. Those of us who have been given the word of God, the message of God, are supposed to take it into our life. And then we're supposed to take it out into the world. God wants to use us as a light for the world. And the Jewish people in this particular city said, we don't, we don't want to do that. You know why? He called them scoffers. In verse 44, he said, look, look you scoffers, you know what the Jews had become? They had become spiritual people who like to make fun of unspiritual people. They'd become the people of God who wanted to judge people that they didn't consider to be the people of God. They became the arrogant church on the hill that said, we've got it right, you've got it wrong. We're going to heaven, you're going to hell. We really know how to live life. You are all jacked up. And they turned into scoffers rather than people who took the message of God to people who didn't have it. They took the message of God and kept it to themselves. And Paul said, God is not gonna allow you to do that. So he said, I'm done with you. I'm gonna go to the Gentiles because it says they honored The Word of God. How do you honor the Word of God? Two ways. You accept it, and then you take and you give it to somebody else. You honor the Word of God by accepting the Word of God, and then taking it and giving it to somebody else. And this is how the church grew. And I promise you, God's strategy for us, God's strategy for Journey Church International, God's strategy for JCI, how is our church going to have impact and influence in our community? God's strategy for us is that the people of God at our church would take the message of God to a world that needs God. And it's not really a message of we're better than you. It's not a message of God hates you. It's not a message of you've got to change a thousand things and then you can be like us. Here was the message of God presented by Paul in Acts chapter 13. It had three main points. Verse 38, Jesus forgives your sins. This is the message of God according to Paul. Verse 38, Jesus forgives your sins. Verse 39, Jesus sets you free from your past. Verse 48, Jesus gives you eternal life. That is the message of God proclaimed by Paul to this city and hundreds of others like it. Jesus forgives you of your sins. Jesus frees you from your past. Jesus gives you eternal life. Now who wants Jesus? And the people responded like crazy. Because when a desperate world meets a merciful God, man, great things happen. When a desperate world who would do anything to be forgiven of some of the stuff they've done is offered forgiveness, they're like, I'll take that. When a desperate world who would do anything to get away from the past that they have endured is given an opportunity to disconnect from their past, they said, I'll take it. When a desperate world is given the opportunity to live for eternity in a place called heaven with God because there's not a human being alive who doesn't believe that one day this life on planet earth will end. They say, I take it. And when a desperate world meets a merciful God, great things happen. And look at verse 49. Here's the strategy behind what happened in the church. When they embrace the message of God, forgiveness, release from past, eternal life, it says the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. The word spread is used of a disease that spreads that can't be stopped. It just took off and everyone was touched by the message of God. As we roll into chapter 14, we see the same thing happen at four other cities in verse 14. But I just want to move us to the end of chapter 14. Because at the end of chapter 14, what we see, number three, is we see a completed mission. And a continued open door. We see that what Paul and Barnabas set out to do, to go meet spiritual needs in the world, they accomplished. And we see they did it in such a way that there was more ministry to be done at the end. Here's how Acts chapter 14 verses 26 through 27 summarizes the end of their ministry, the end of their specific work, the end of their specific strategy. It says from Atalia, that's a city, they sailed back to Antioch where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work that they had now completed. And on arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. I don't think it's coincidence that the author, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, begins and ends Paul's first ministry with the words, he completed the mission." Because Paul's first missionary journey begins and ends with completed missions. Acts 12.25, it begins with a mission completed to meet physical needs of a hurting community. Before he was left, it says they went to Jerusalem and they completed the mission of helping people with physical needs. But then it ends with a mission completed to meet the spiritual needs of people far from God. Acts 14.27, they returned home and they had completed what they had set out to do. This church so we're going to figure out what needs people has and we're going, to, we're going to meet them physically. This church so we're going to figure out the people in our lives, the people in our homes, the people, our people, in our neighborhoods, our schools, our teams. We're going to find the people in our life that need God spiritually. We're going to tell them about God spiritually. And then we're just going to let God do His thing. And it was a thing that was mission complete. But here's what's difficult. We're going to get into Acts 15 next week and things are going to start stressing just like they did in Acts chapter 5 when we started studying a little bit about spiritual warfare in March. When God's church lives on mission, a lot of people get helped physically and spiritually. But it's hard for the church because it changes things. It changes the dynamics of what church looks like because people who get help, people who lean into Jesus, people who connect to your church, they, they take your seat in church. You show up. All of a sudden, they're sitting in your row. And they, and they don't look at them because they'll feel real awkward, especially if they're new. They take your parking spot at church. They bring their children who have poopy diapers and you have to go in the nursery and help hold their kids so that they can sit and learn about Jesus. The church grows and it demands that more people step up and volunteer. And it kind of it cramps the style that you have. There, there are people who come that need to get plugged in and engaged to the small group mechanism of the church. But if the small group ministry says, no, I, I've got my people, I like my people, we really don't want anyone new, we, we begin to build a barrier that people can't get into in our church. So we say in our small groups, you're going to start a small group, but maybe one day your small group will kind of split in half and we'll bring new people to each of you. And that's hard. It's uncomfortable because you get comfortable with a group of people. You get comfortable with the size of a church. You get comfortable knowing all the pastors by name. You get comfortable knowing your kid's Sunday school teacher. And when more and more and more and more people get helped, more and more and more people come, and it's just hard for the church. But churches who are willing to kind of embrace that pain so that others might meet Jesus, man, I'm telling you, a church with a strategy to tell the story of Jesus, they're going to grow in number. They're going to grow in influence, and they're going to grow in impact for God. Will it be hard? Yes. Will it be uncomfortable? Yes. Will someone take our seat? Probably. Will someone take our parking stall? More than likely. Somebody going to come who looks a little different than us? Hopefully. Somebody going to come who brings a bunch of kids, and i got to volunteer in the nursery twice a month now instead of once a month? Hopefully. Hopefully there'll be so many come that we're like the disciples. We can hardly get the net back to shore. It's like, Jesus, we don't even know what to do with all these people. But people in this community are saying, that's where people get help. Physically and spiritually, that's where people get help. Let's go there. Because Christians willing to live seeing others, man, those people always have an open door to impact people for Jesus. And that's, what, that, that's the church in Acts 13 and 14. They saw people spiritually, and they decided to do something about it, and they had impact. You say, well, how does spiritual impact happen? I'd like to impact somebody spiritually, but how does spiritual impact happen? Believe it or not, spiritual impact is as simple as the next one. Paul preached this message. I mean, if we could summarize, and there's a lot of ways to preach Acts 13 and 14, but if we could just summarize the Apostle Paul's message of spiritual impact and how anyone anyone is touched by God... He gives us a string of names and then he leaves the last names kind of as pronouns. He said, Moses led to Samuel. Samuel led to Saul. Saul led to David. David led to John the Baptist. John the Baptist led to Jesus. Jesus has led to us. We're here for you. And he said, you need to go reach them. See how that works? Spiritual impact is as simple as the next one. Jesus, Jesus told us, we're telling you, And you should go tell them. So I'd like to end this service today focused on two things. One focused on gratitude. And two focused on challenge. And here's what I mean by that. In the lineage of your spiritual story, like somewhere in a book in heaven, there's a name, I believe, of every person who's ever connected to Jesus. And just maybe it's preceded by the name of the person who helped them connect to Jesus. Who should you have spiritual gratitude for that you haven't thought about lately? Who's the person in your story who comes right before you? Who, because they connected to Jesus, you connected to Jesus? For a lot of us, it's our moms and dads. For some of us, maybe a big brother, big sister. For some of us, maybe a boyfriend or girlfriend or a a husband and wife. For some of us, maybe a grandma or grandpa. For some of us, a Sunday school teacher or a coach or one of our school teachers or a principal or an FCA director, or an RA in college, or a neighbor across the street. Who is the person that you should have spiritual gratitude for, that when you look at your spiritual story, you say, because they were connected to Jesus, I got connected to Jesus. Because I'd like to end in just a moment by allowing you to pray, and just thank God for them, and pray for them, wherever they may be in life today. But I also want you to pray for a challenge. Who's next? Who's the person in your life that they're going to meet Jesus, because you know Jesus? And they don't even know it yet, and you don't even know it yet. But one day in the history of their life spiritually, they're going to be sitting in a church like this in 25, 30 years, and a pastor is going to say, why do you know Jesus? And they're going to think of your name and think, you know what? Because I knew that person and they knew Jesus, I know Jesus. So I want to end with gratitude and challenge. Who are you thankful for? The person in your life that knew Jesus and helped you know him. And then who, who is maybe God challenging you to say, hey, this, this person, they know you, but they don't know Jesus Help me figure that out. Because when the church lives that way, people are helped spiritually. So let's pray together.